I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Curious Podcast, recorded in association with our friends at the Curious Brewery. Dolly Alderton is an award-winning journalist who's written for publications including the Sunday Times, the Daily Telegraph, GQ, Marie Claire, Red and Grazia, to name but a few. From 2015 to 2017, she was the Sunday Times' Styles dating columnist. She is co-host of The High Low, a weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast, and also writes and directs for television. She is also now a fully-fledged, completely beautifully published author with a magnificent, I'm going to call it a memoir, Dolly, but it's called Everything I Know About Parties Crossed Out, Dates Crossed Out, Friends Crossed Out, Jobs Crossed Out, Life Crossed Out, Love by Dolly Alderton. And it's published in hardback by Penguin. Dolly, very well welcome to the Curious Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Can I please borrow your voice for my own podcast? I will give it away. And actually, <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about podcasts a bit later on, because you have a very successful podcast. Thank you. Uh, 80,000 a week, is that right? Something like that? Well, do you know what? We went through a phase where we were playing pretty loosey-goosey with the stats when we were meeting with brands, and it was kind of whatever we were, we rounded up to the nearest 10. Pretty loosey-goosey is an official accountancy <laughs> term. I, I'm given to understand, <laughs> is that right? Yes, exactly. Totally good. And... Um, <laughs> And we've now, we went in for a uh, meeting and we kept rounding up. And then the, our producer said, you know, you're actually saying way lower than you're getting. So we're now on 130,000 a week. Are you serious? Yeah. What do you ascribe to success? Well, first of all, tell us what's the podcast about? So the High Low is a, it's inspired by Vanity Fair editor, iconic magazine editor, Tina Brown, yeah. um, and her ethos of high-low media, high-low culture, um, and kind of mixing, elevating the seemingly trivial to a sort of academic level and accessing the kind of heavyweight of the news um, and the zeitgeist with a kind of lightness and accessibility. So it's, it's that mix. So any given week, that's what we really love about the ethos of the podcast. Any given week I could be talking about seeing Madame Butterfly at Glyndebourne, um, the anniversary of Grenfell and, I don't know, the 20-year anniversary of Sex in the City. So we really like to kind of cram in that mix as authentically as possible. Was that just this week's podcast? <laughs> that is kind of, yeah, just this week's. Um, so yeah, and then we talk about it, we talk about recommendations at the top of what we've been reading or listening to or watching, and then we talk about two topics, and then we have a listener question at the end. And where can people find it? 
they can find it on iTunes on, and, or on Acast. Excellent. And it's called? The High Low. The High Low. Well, there we go. That's the commercial break out of the way. <laughs> uh, now, let's come back to you. Because what I'm impressed by you for a number of reasons, actually, Dolly. And this is, if this sounds like a hagiography, um, I apologise. But I love your writing. So can you tell us how you got started writing? Were you, did you come from a bookish family? Were the books in the home? Did you read English literature? All that mm. sort of stuff. So my dad has read one book in his entire life, which mm-hmm. is Michael Heseltine's autobiography. Oh, not the Haynes Manual to the Mark III Ford Cortina. <laughs> I mean, he may have given that a quick, brief skim. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, my dad's not bookish at all. My mum is a total bookworm. In fact, my mum gave me the coffee table book in front of you called Women Who Read Are Dangerous, which is uh, beautiful paintings of women reading. So yeah, she's a real bookworm, and she read to me when I was a kid. Um, And then I was always writing. I was always writing diaries from the age of about five. Pretty compelling stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at school, I was editing school magazines. And then I did... uh, I wanted to be a playwright. Obviously, the raison d'etre of all self-obsessed teenagers. Of course. Um, And I... So I studied drama. Did it for a year. Absolutely hated it. Didn't really... Because I thought I would be learning how to be Pinter. And instead I was wearing like karate trousers every day. (laughs) Angry white pyjamas. Yeah, and being told to like unpack my emotional knapsack in front of the class. Quite. Um, And it turns out my... Buttocks are too clenched for that, so... (laughs) You're no use of being a tree. No, 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 I'm a bad tree. So I then switched to English literature, and then I did a Master's in Journalism, and then I've been kind of working half in TV and in freelance journalism for the last... Let's talk about the journalism bit to begin with. So having done a Master's in Journalism, how easy and or difficult was it to get the first paid job? Awful, horrific. Because it's a shock tank. It's so hard to get, to break into print media... As yeah. it was then, when I assume you were starting in his lesson these days. Yeah, it was a nightmare. It was, I had nine months of being unemployed, and that was, I was going from, I was basically, whoever would take me for a free in- internship, I was going from country life, compiling the best sort of cows to give you the best cuts of beef, to, you know, take a break magazine, to FHM, I was just kind of doing the rounds. Mm. And then I got a really, really, really lucky break because I was reviewing a show called Maiden Chelsea, which was in its first series at that point. It was a new show, exciting show on E4. Yeah. And I was doing kind of, I was writing for free, but this website said, look, you can just write about each episode week on week. And I thought, well, I'm 22. What other chance will I have to have my own voice and my own opinions, my own platform? Great. So I was writing this kind of funny little analysis of each episode. And then the exec producer of the show found them um, and he said, would you like to come in to talk about maybe being a story producer? So then I just accidentally became a story producer for that show and I was kind of freelancing as a journalist on the side. We'll come to the book in a second, um, but there's a nice passage in the book about the first meeting when you went to first meet. Was it somebody called Dilly who was one of the producers? Yes, God, so says. well remembered, yes. I read the book. <laughs> um, and Dilly gets a mention later on, in fact, as well. That's a huge break. Were you nervous about that? I mean, how do you feel when you go into a meeting like that with the exec producers mm. of what is obviously going to be... And, and that, that show gained, gained traction really quickly. Yeah. So it already had sort of hit the zeitgeist. It was really... It was, it was hitting a, a, 
a lot of buttons on, mm. on sort of British media. Mm. You're there in front of the exec producers who have made it happen. You're thinking, mm. this is my big break, don't fuck it up. Or, oh my God, this is my big break, this is it, I'm here. Do I've you know arrived. what? I think it's, I'm only realising it now, I'm at the very 11th hour, last frost of the last winter of my 20s. I'm only realising that there's this kind of like, there's this carefree confidence that you have when you're 22, I think, because you have... You, you have so few expectations of where life is going to take you yeah. and everything seems so impossible and so overwhelming. I think it was kind of the best age for me to go into such a big meeting. I think I would be much more neurotic and overthink a, a job opportunity like that now. I think you have nothing really to lose at 22. So, I mean, as you mentioned, the scene that I write about in the book is I just waltzed in straight off the back of Secret Garden Party, having not showered for about five days. Um, and wearing my ex-boyfriend's T-shirt as a dress. Like, that was that was my first big meeting there. And I think that kind of, well, let's just throw myself self into this and see how it goes. I think that probably stood me in quite good stead. We should all channel, you know, the road of of a 22-year-old, basically, <laughs> exactly. at all times. Do you know, I'm so pleased that you said that, because there was, it's not often these days, I mean, I've read a book a day or five books a week for about the last 30 years of my life, not often I find a new word. And the word you just mentioned, rhodomontada, oh, yeah. I had to look up. I yeah. was delighted to find your word. Please describe or please define what rhodomontada means. It means like an enormous amount of confidence. And I learned it through um, Morrissey's Desert Island Discs. Really? And he has to explain it to Kirsty Young and he's incredibly happy about that. Oh, <laughs> super. I'm happy to refer you to... Oh, do you know what? I listened to, I listened to Morrissey's Desert Island Discs. I must have missed that. Uh, yes, empty empty braggadocio yeah, is how it. is I think how um, Whittam's yeah. um, defines it. Yeah, how funny. Merriam-Webster is actually how it defi- uh, how Merriam-Webster particularly defines it. Oh, I'm glad that you've. Picked- it's great when you pick up a new word, isn't it? It's it's oh, it's such a joy. Yeah, my mum always says if when you find a new word, you have to use it three times in a week, and then it's yours. And then it's yours exactly. Yeah. Do you know Will Self says that? There's a man that likes a new word. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Will Self has given me some good. Pearls. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Especially in his psychogeography uh, uh, things in, in, in one of the Sunday papers. Right, so let's come to journalism. What did you love about journalism? What is it in the nature of Dolly Alderton that made journalism work for you and you work for journalism? What? Because, of course, any journalism is about much like writing in anything. Mm. It's about finding your voice and then mm. exploring that voice. Yeah. Did you have a policy as to what the voice was going to be, what Dolly Alderton wanted to say and how she was going to say it, or was it just... I'm just going to be me. I think I just learned, I think you, you find what your voice is the more that you use it and hone it. And in terms of journalism, I always just thought being a journalist was the best job in the world. I mean, now with the wisdom of age, I realise it's poorly paid mm. and it can be precarious and it's, it's very competitive. Um, but when it's good, I think journalism, I really don't think there's any better job in the world because basically... The people who are journalists are the people who um, always are telling the best story at the pub at a table, I think, because a journalist is basically a channel between the masses or a reader mm-hmm. and a, a really exciting, privileged experience. So that could be a war zone yes. or a, a, a beautiful new piece of theatre or a really exciting celebrity or a great restaurant that's just opened. Like I can't think of a more privileged and trusted position for an editor, a magazine 
and indeed your audience sending you out and going, you go see that for us and then you come back in your words and tell us everything you saw. I just think it's like when, when, when you do it well and you're matched with the right experience and you, you convey it in a vivid and beautiful and clear and honest way in your own voice, it just feels like your job is being that person in the pub who everyone's listening to. It's the best job. Joe, it's very elegantly put. It puts me in mind of another very good journalist, a, a friend of mine called Christina Lamb, who is a war journalist. She has written for the Sunday Times mm. for most of her career. Mm. Um, for an she was the woman who, the, the journalist who, who broke the, um, the story of the Afghan girl who, who got shot on the bus, trying yes. to, um, whose name escapes me right now, and I, it's unforgivable. But she said a very similar thing about privilege. She also speaks of responsibility, and of course one can understand the responsibility of being a war journalist, yes. where you have the dangers of telling the truth, but knowing you're putting yourself in danger if you do so with the people that may not want you to tell the truth. Mm. How, do you, how do you factor in the responsibility of good journalism in the, in, in the world in which you work? Well, um, I don't Sorry, before think... you start, I've just thought of her name. Malala yeah. Yousafzai, of course, is the, is the girl I was thinking of. Um, well... I mean, that's Christina Lamb's responsibility is enormous um, because she's she's doing such important work. And I, but I think I agree. I think every journalist has a degree of responsibility. It's funny you should mention the people that you're interviewing because mm-hmm. that was a big thing for me, particularly when I had a dating column week in week out because I was writing about real people. So I think you have a responsibility there to tell the truth, and I think you have the responsibility on the whole to seek out permission. Um, and I think, I think, I think with most, if it's storytelling journalism, um, like an anecdotal, like a column, um, I, rather than a review or something, I think that your, your main job is to make sure that the essence of what you're saying is entirely truthful, but allow yourself to color your expression, um, as much as you can. Yes. I think that's really nicely put. Dolly, can we talk about the dating column? What was the, what was what was that about? What was the responsibility there? What was the what was the high concept thing? So that dating column took a while for me to to kind of understand and to find my stride with because when I first got that column, I thought I was given six hundred words a week on the back page next to Cosmo Landsman, who was a brilliant journalist um, in his mid sixties, and we. Our responsibility was to serialise our lives. And right. I hadn't I didn't realise that. So when I got the column, I was like, oh how wonderful. I have this like space to ponder on, you know, the nuances and complications of heterosexual courtship in the modern day. And actually the more I pondered, the more they were like, No, this is not <laughs> we're not paying you for like ponderings. We're paying for you for, to tell us about like week on week. We're following a story. Yes. It's like we want an exciting um, it's not soapy, but it's like it's. It really helped me with my TV writing, actually, because it was about um, getting get. You know, six hundred words is not that much, so it's mm. about getting to the heart of a scene and a character and a person really fast, really quickly. Yeah, it's about still filling it. I interviewed the uh, author Meg Wallitzer the other day, mm. and she said this thing that I think is so true, where she said plotting is obviously a part of the writing, and characters part of the writing. She said the magic bit of the writing is like. Um, atmosphere 
like she said, it's like putting these like little raindrops in the atmosphere and creating this like environment. So you have to like put like make the atmosphere like who is this girl? What music does she listen to? What's her sense of humour? What's her all that atmospheric stuff was really important as well. Who is she? What's the context? Yeah, Yeah, and 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 also and then provide a kind of cliffhanger and also think of in the long term what is my long-term narrative here? And that's the moments in which you sometimes can send yourself up. Because my long-term narrative, the truth of my 20s with love has been, I really like the idea of a boyfriend. For some reason, I find commitment really difficult. Mm. So with that in mind, that's something that I would kind of pepper as a message throughout. Um, And Cosmo did the same, but Cosmo's one was, I'm a hopeless romantic and I keep asking women to marry me and they keep saying no. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. For 60 years. (laughs) He's done done it three times, so he's done okay. Um, But, yeah. He made a a lot of common column inches out of those three times. He really did. He really did. Look, everything is copy. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, that was the kind of concept of it. Brings us neatly to your book, actually. Can we talk a little bit about your book? Yeah, of course. Because it is... I mean, it's just fantastically written. It puts me in mind of Caitlin Moran and... Brian Gordon. Thank you, Patrick. Brian Gordon, that, that's my producer Patrick's voice in the background, <laughs> one of the founders of the Curious Festival, who sets everything up for us. So say hello to Patrick, everybody. Everybody <laughs> says hello, Patrick. <laughs> this is now something on very radio, too. I yeah, like it. <laughs> exactly. We've got a bit zoo. Um, it isn't journalism. It's sort of a memoir. Actually, why am I describing it? Describe your book. What is it? Um, I, I used to really resist the term memoir because to me memoir means I wrote it wearing silk pajamas, maybe with tuberculosis above a Chinese restaurant. In- Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On a typewriter. I like your definition of a memoir. <laughs> that gives me something to aim for. <laughs> and also, every time that I said to people it's a memoir, anyone over 40 would go, A memoir? But you're 28, which I found um, endlessly amusing, as you can imagine. <laughs> I can see the irritated look on your face. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the truth is, it is a memoir because it is, it's uh, the first draft of the book that I wrote, I was. Um, 25 and it was completely different and it was the book that got me my wonderful agent Claire Conville it was mm. 
50,000 words called How to Survive Your 20s, which was a kind of journalistic manual of all the problems and anxieties that I was having in my 20s. I was 25 at the time of writing, mm-hmm. so it obviously takes an exceptionally confident young woman to write a manual of how to survive a decade when only when you're five years through, through it. <laughs> um, but I think in my head that's what I thought that I could do because I thought I'm a journalist. That kind of that will transfer very easily to a sort of lifestyle, chatty, um, just a collection of journalism, really. And that's not what I wanted to write. And with the help of Claire, what I realised what I wanted to write was um, stories of my twenties. Um, told in a novelistic way um, and kind of explore in a thematic way as well exploring different kind of strands and the first big strand was kind of the relationship with myself and with uh, you know my you know body image and my relationship with my confidence and my relationship with self-esteem my relationship with demons and my relationship with romance and sex and then the second big thread of it so that's all about kind of journeying of self and growing up and then the second thread of it was about my relationship with the big love of my life which is my female friends Mm -hmm. um so yeah those were the kind of two strands of the story and it was told in a more in a more kind of narrative driven sense I'm per- I have to f- confess here, and if you're listening to this podcast, you'll probably think, how old is Paul Blezard? Well, Paul Blezard is 55 years old. And white, he looks bloody good on it. White and male, and currently looking a little bit like a gammon steak. You are not a gammon. Of the summer. You're very kind of the, to, to say that, Dolly. <laughs> so I am not the target audience, I would guess, for Dolly's book. But here's why I loved it. Any creative writing, any artistic endeavour that gets the heart and the truth of a human emotion... The closer it gets to the heart of the truth of that human emotion, the wider the audience. And Dolly does a thing with this book where she is so truthful and so gets the heart of what it's like to be Dolly Alderton in her mid to late 20s that even a 55-year-old gipper like me can understand. Because we've all felt some of the things that you have felt in our own way. That's that's, so lovely of you to say. Well, it's just beautifully, beautifully written. So can we come to some of the anecdotes? Because the... there must have been some sort of editorial decision in your own mind, even at the time of the first draft, yeah. when you think, what do I put in, what do I leave out? Yes. And you put in the sex stuff, you put in the drunken stuff, you put in the partying stuff, you put in the I hate myself stuff, you put mm-hmm. in the I love myself stuff. But it all comes back, as you say, to defining who you are, finding where your exactly. edges are. Exactly. And I'm delighted that you say about the longest love affair of your life, which is with a whole group of fantastic women mm. who are your peer group, your mm. cohort. Mm. And I forget their names now, but there are about half a dozen of them as you go through school, mm. from North London, yada, 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 university, all that sort of stuff, especially in Exeter. You're very funny about Exeter. What do you say about Exeter University? That it made me more stupid than, than when I arrived. <laughs> So if you're thinking of going to Exeter University, <laughs> ding long and hard. Look, if you would like a degree in foam parties and Jaeger bombs, <laughs> then I highly recommend Exeter. Exactly. <laughs> it used to be, in my day, it was where if you couldn't get a proper degree but played rugby really well and That's were a bloke. exactly what it is. It was called the Green Welly uh, Uni in the 80s, apparently. There used to be car stickers, which had the Carlsberg Lager thing, probably the best university in the world, to which quite often people would graffiti, no, it's bloody not. <laughs> And I can tell you, Paul, those stickers are still, very still, are they still there? alive and well. I'm yes. delighted to hear that the millennials <laughs> haven't changed the entire world as I know it in this one particular area. <laughs> so how did you define what to leave out, what to put in, and why, I suppose is the question I'm yeah. trying to ask. Um, 
So in terms of a question that I've been, that I get a lot is people saying, well, how do you feel about it? You know, it's so honest. And how does it feel to have all your secrets out there? And the answer is, in terms of um, how truthful I got or how intimate I suppose I got with the page, is uh, I only wrote about stuff for which I was out the other side. Yeah. And, you know... I think people forget your 20s, to use a line from Nora Ephron, when you're going through your 20s, it's like dog years. Like, the difference between a 23-year-old and a 28-year-old is enormous. Enormous. Enormous in terms of what you've learned and who you are and how you behave and the dots that you've joined. And by the time I wrote this book, I was nearly 29. I'd done 18... I'd finished therapy. I'd done 18 months of therapy. Um, I'd done a lot of soul-searching. I'd done a huge amount of thinking and I'd changed a lot of my habits. So... At that point, I don't mind talking about the mess because it's it's a part of who I am, and I understood the other side of it. It wasn't that I was ashamed of any of that mess. Um, I embraced it for a part of the journey, but I wasn't at I wasn't at the mercy of it anymore. So I don't mind if people say to me, which sometimes they do in a Goodreads review or whatever, because we have we have such a gendered double standard for how we allow women to kind of celebrate and uh, enjoy being alive be that with whatever may that that might include substances or alcohol or sex um and how yeah how we allow men and how we allow women to do that so mm. i knew that i would receive some of that criticism and i actually forgive the people that write that because i think so much of that will be this like shaming culture that yes. we live in that that they've been indoctrinated to think that i'm either a mess or I'm oversharing or I'm embarrassing or I'm tragic when something's I'm just broken not. you need fixing something's and it's broken, not exactly. the case but because I know that I'm okay with people saying that to Good. me you know so in terms of sharing or knowing what to share of personal stuff um it's just what I found that I had drawn some conclusions on can we talk a little bit about the therapy because I'm curious I mean I've read, I've read the book the curious podcast why therapy? What was it there for? What did it give you? Mm. I mean, I've read the book, so I kind of know what it led to, which mm. I'm not going to reveal because it's one of the most heartwarming and also heartrending experiences yeah. at the same time. The word guru. Oh, Christ. Yes, yeah. exactly. We'll let, them, we'll let readers find <laughs> this out for themselves or come to the Curious Festival when hopefully I'm going to be interviewing you and we can re- review oh, this great. conversation oh, with you. Oh, great. I'd love that. Good, it? Yeah. But why therapy? Because that's often a big, for, for people of my age, that's a big step. It means, it, yes. it is about shame. It is about, I failed and therefore need totally. help, all that sort of stuff. Totally. And I think, I mean, I really feel for your generation because I think that that's a stigma that has cast such a long shadow, I think. It's broken so many lives. <laughs> yeah. So many people yeah. that could have benefited from totally. therapy have not done so because of the shame of going to therapy. Totally. And actually now there are so many times where I read um, about my favourite, you know, I'm like, basically a six-year-old man at heart in terms of like my favorite musicians <laughs> where I'll read about my favorite musicians like I was reading about John Martin the other day oh, yes and I was as I was reading about him I was like this man needed therapy yeah. this man had mental health issues and obviously this is something that just like would never have even come into a conversation of like a working-class Scottish man on the folk scene taking hard drugs in the 70s there's right. no way someone would be like maybe you need to talk to someone and yet you pull apart any of his lyrics and it's all there plain to see exactly it's in plain sight um but i think that it is starting to um 
destigmatize in uh, amongst my generation. I mean, there still is, I must say, that the reason that I put it off for so long, well, not so long, I was 27 when I went to therapy, but the reason I had put it off for a bit is, first of all, that I couldn't afford it until, that, until then, to be quite frank, but also I think there is still this feeling of it's, it's self-indulgent mm. and it's neurotic. It's narcissistic. Um, it's narcissistic. Snowflake generation, yada, yada, yada. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> but... Do you know, the reason I did it actually is that I had a number of friends who had done it and I had seen such practical, positive changes in them. And I think the big myth of therapy, everyone I know who's in therapy has said the big myth of it is that it's you lying on a chaise lounge crying about like the way your mum did or didn't praise your painting when you were three. And it's really not that. Like there's, there's a bit of that, but to be honest, it's much more practical of like, how can, where has this, this, this behaviour that you're unhappy with, let's like do some archaeology on it and find the root of it and work out where it came from. And then let's let go of that and not dwell on that and work out how you change it now. Cool. And that's just practical, brilliant advice for being a good human, both to yourself and to other people. Here, here. Hurrah, Daddy Alton. It's not Woody Allen therapy circa 1980s <laughs> yes, New exactly. York. Or any Swedish Scandi noir where there is a Danish chaise long and... Yeah, although endless... that sounds kind of fun. Well, actually, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd sign up for that. So, Curious Festival is coming up on the 20th to the 22nd of July, uh, but a few short weeks away. You are guesting there as yes. a featured artiste, talking yes. about the book and other things. Where You've been to Curious before. Tell us what your this, first experience of Curious was like. The first experience um, was joyful. I mean, because I have so much fun at Curious, I often can't remember big, big swings <laughs> of it. It is rather a good party. I tell you, my favourite event that I saw in the first one is I saw Viv Albertine being interviewed by Emma Jane Unsworth. Um, and that was just such a brilliant conversation. Wasn't it? And off the back of that, I hadn't heard, well, I'd heard of the slits, but I hadn't heard of Viv Albertine in her writing mm. up until that point. And now I've read her first memoir about three times. I've now read her second memoir twice. So she, it really it introduced me to a woman whose writing is now really important to me. Um, and then last year's Curious. Last year's Curious was kind of amazing because there was like this downpour of rain. Yes. And it felt sort of like pagan i loved it it felt like really sexy all day there were yeah. these like huge storms sexy damp people yeah intense yeah. or not or, in, pool, of, or think, in the sea <laughs> i think it added because i remember talking to claire about it afterwards and she was worried about the weather and i was like no i think it added this kind yeah. of tribalistic element to it that i loved there's something very grounding okay the two things i love about curious and i'm pleased that you mentioned the rain because actually with good festivals when your feet are on the ground on grass literally barefoot on grass you're mm. walking in somebody's garden at Wellwell yes. Park yeah. one it's very grand but two when it rains you get that fantastic smell of sort of damp hot earth do you, yeah, do you and know damp the word hot people tell me petrichor what yeah okay spell it P-E-T-R-I-C-H-O-R sorry to interrupt you but there you go there's your new word there's for a new today. word for the day <laughs> there's the Curious Arts Festival uh, <laughs> podcast word for the day as as as, um, as furnished by Dolly Alton but there was so it made it much more collegiate the festival exactly much more communal yes because we're all rammed under a few sheets of canvas yeah it's like six thousand people under sheets of canvas yeah trying to stay dry and meeting new people it was great it was yeah. magic I loved the rain last year I did a rain dance with thirty kids it oh was did fantastic. you oh damn I'm sad that I missed that join in this year it's bound to rain. <laughs> 
Uh, but last year, actually, you chaired an event, if memory serves. You were on stage interviewing... Nikki me. Hodgson. That's I it. was interviewing her about her brilliant book, which is about the history of dating and courtship from kind of Austinian times to um, uh, Tinder. And that was a great conversation. And actually, I think I'd had By about... By Austinian, you mean Jane Austen. Jane Austen, yeah, yes. Okay. Um, and I think I'd had about two hours sleep. Um, and I think it. I think sometimes, you know, when you're chairing events, sometimes that kind of lack of sleep or a terrible hangover can be really great and engender this like re- very relaxed openness. Do you know why that works? Why? Because you're still drunk. <laughs> you're still drunk. You don't, want to, you don't want to screw up. So you tend to say less. So the person you're interviewing gets to say more. Yes. And you look like a brilliant interviewer. <laughs> exactly, rather than yammering on. Rather than yammering on, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'll do that again this year if I'm chairing. But Curious is my favourite festival and I love the kind of cross-section of voices that they have and I love the mix of... Um, music and poetry and um, um, yeah I just love it it's a great festival I'm probably asking you to repeat the same thing you've gone to a few festivals you mentioned Secret Garden earlier on what do you think makes Curious so special because I think it's unique I and mean, it was described um, I think by John Ilse in a previous podcast as a unique boutique festival which is quite mm. a nice sort mm. of homonym but... well first of all there's just that dream pile and there's like the mm. view over the sea and um, you know the gorgeous it's such a beautiful setting but I really do think it's going back to my ethos of my podcast. I think it's there's a really uh, modern, exciting, creative, interesting mix of voices of different ages, of different subjects, and different formats. And it's uh, it's all so seamless. There's this just like beautiful, thoughtful mix yes. of of thinking and, and ideas. And I think that also brings together a really lovely mix, unique mix of audience as well. So, Great. yeah. That's one of the things I love about Curious is the fact that it's so well curated and so well programmed. So you can have philosophy, hard by comedy, hard by you know literary fiction, memoirs such as yours, use the memoir word, and then fantastic music in the evening. It's it's like a brilliant three day live TV pro channel totally. that you really want to watch. Yeah. It's like Channel Four meets BBC Four meets Yesterday meets a little bit of Dave. Um, <laughs> a little bit of day yeah no I agree on grass yeah exactly. yeah on very beautiful grass on very beautiful grass you've been listening to the Curious Podcast with me Paul Blessard talking to Dolly Alderton about all sorts of things but not least her book Everything I Know About Parties Crossed Out Dates Crossed Out Friends Crossed Out Jobs Crossed Out Life Crossed Out Love by Dolly Alderton we hope to see you at the Curious Arts Festival on the 20th to the 22nd of July at Pilewell Park, P-Y-L-E-W-E-L-L Park, lovely pile as Dolly described it <laughs> earlier on, uh, down on the south coast near Lymington with a fantastic view across the Solent to the Isle of Wight. Have a look at the programme at www.curiousartsfestival.com. We are delighted to say that this podcast has been brought to you in association, in partnership with our friends at the Curious Brewery. We'll see you next time. Dolly, thank you very much for joining us. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.